What's God's will for me? What is God's will for me? What's God's will for my life? This is a question that many of us ask or have asked or will ask. Uh, maybe more often we asked this question in the younger parts of our lives in the earlier stages, but most of us at some point have asked, do ask, or will ask this question. What has God planned for me? What does God want from me, for me, of me? What does God want me to do? What is God's will for my life? Does God want me to go to college? And if so, where? Does God want me to get married? And if so, to whom? Does God want me to move to a certain place, a certain city, a certain country? Does God want me to have or take a particular job or train for a particular vocation? Does God want me to have children? Does God want me to go back to school or to become a missionary? Does God want me to reconcile with that person from whom I've been estranged for so long? Does God want me to move in with my children, or schedule a major donation, or put so-and-so in my will, or take so-and-so out of my will? What is God's will for me? This is a question that we'll attempt to answer this morning uh, through uh, looking at the scriptures, but first, let's pray. We have questions, God. You have answers. Our understanding is limited. You are all wise. We are finite beings. You are eternal, omniscient. Our questions are often limited by our own perspective. You see everything. Our hearts are stained by corruption. You are wholly good, perfect in all of your ways. And so we sit before you. We present ourselves before you asking that you would help us to be attentive to things that you would have us learn, to ways that you would have us grow, to the people you would have us become. We seek your kingdom. We want to seek your kingdom. I pray and ask that as my words are true to your word, that they be taken to heart. If my words stray or deviate in any way from your word, may they be immediately forgotten. We pray in Christ the Lord. Amen. So reading this morning from the Apostle Paul's first letter to the Christians back then in Thessalonica, which was a part of the Roman Empire, still uh, today the second largest city in the country of Greece. Scholars believe that 1 Thessalonians was probably the first letter that we have of the letters that Paul wrote, and so that makes it the earliest or the oldest of all of the books in the New Testament. Uh, We're going to begin reading at chapter 5, verse 12, toward the latter part of that book. Uh, The editors in some of today's Bibles have inserted little subtitles to help us navigate the Scriptures. Uh, In this one, they have placed above it final instructions, Paul's final instructions in this letter. So listen closely. This is the Word of God. Verse 12. Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord, and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard and love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive. Encourage the disheartened. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strives to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the spirit. Do not treat the prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good, reject every kind of evil. 
And while that section, that couple of paragraphs toward the end of Paul's letter is a lot, and it probably could be a six or eight week series uh, just in that passage alone, we're going to focus this morning on three little verses that compounded together kind of make one extended sentence. Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. And we're going to even hone in just a little bit more on that last verse, verse 18, as rejoicing and praying are a part of or are they are ways that we give thanks. Uh, rejoicing and praying are ways that we give thanks, and so giving thanks seems to be the culmination of these three little verses that make one long sentence, which Paul says, make up God's will for us in Christ Jesus. What is God's will for me in Christ Jesus? What is God's will for me in life? To rejoice always, to pray continually, and through both of those, to give thanks to God in all circumstances. But I ask myself, as I often do when I'm looking at the scriptures, why? What's behind this? What's the reason for this? Why? Why is giving thanks all of that important? Why is giving thanks in all circumstances important? Why does Paul say that giving thanks in all circumstances is God's will for me in Christ Jesus? What is God after? I grew up being told that I was supposed to be, uh, that I was supposed to say Thank you. My mom was really big into that. Uh, manners, etiquette, protocol, being courteous. And so she was always telling us, say thank you. Say thank you. And I wonder, what is that all about? Lord have mercy, woman. <laughs> I was a kid. Uh, are you just, you just don't want to be embarrassed by an ill-mannered kid? Is that what this is about? Uh, what's going on? Why are you always hounding me to say thank you? But along the way, not quickly, not soon, not early, not when I was young, it became clear that saying thank you, or better yet, expressing gratitude, being grateful, was about far more than good manners. It was and it is about growing up, and it was and it is about becoming the people God wants us to be. As it tur turns out, saying thank you and, and meaning it is not just, or, uh, not just about the other person. It's not just uh, coming off as grateful. It's not just about having good manners, but rather also it's about ourselves. It's not just the other person's perception of me or what they may think of my mom, but it is also and very much about ourselves. And part of the way that we are changed and part of the way that we are transformed and part of the way that we're made whole and part of the way in Greek, the way that we are saved. As has happens when we love our neighbors, we become loving people. When we love our enemies, we become people who are capable of loving our enemies. When we are generous, we become people who are generous. That's the way it works. And so a person who practices giving thanks and practices gratitude becomes, obviously, a more and more grateful person, or they are more likely to be. So saying thank you, being grateful, is about growing up. It's about becoming the people God intends us to be. It's about the people becoming the people in Christ that God intends us to be. 
We just spent four and a half months going through the book of Colossians. I don't know if you realized it along the way, but in every chapter of Paul's letter to the Colossians, he either gives thanks himself or encourages the Colossian Christians to give thanks, to practice gratitude, to be thankful. It's all over not only Colossians, but so many books of the Bible, so much of Scripture. The Psalms echo and repeat, give thanks to the Lord, give thanks to the Lord, give thanks to the Lord. Conversely, our culture teaches us, sometimes quite subversively, that we need more. A hundred times a day in advertisements of all sorts, we are told that we need more that we should want more, that we should buy more, that we should crave more, that we should seek more. Do not be content with what you have is the underlying message. Gratitude is not a thing that Madison Avenue inherently encourages, and so ingratitude can fill that void. Are you with me? But gratitude really has very little to do, Madison Avenue, with what we have, what we possess, what we own. I'm going to say that again. Gratitude, true gratitude, really has very little to do with what we have, with what we possess, with what we get, with what we obtain, with what we own. Instead, gratitude, this will be our first of seven points, gratitude recognizes grace. Gratitude recognizes the grace of God, and, grace rec- and gratitude recognizes the grace of God particularly in one's own life, one's own sphere, one's own realm, one's own circle, as well as in the world. In the words of the American monk, writer, theologian, poet, activist, and scholar Thomas Merton, to be grateful is to recognize the love of God in everything He has given us, and He has given us everything. Every breath we draw is a gift of his love and so a form of grace. Every moment of existence is a grace for it brings with it immense graces from God. Gratitude, therefore, takes nothing for granted, is never unresponsive, is constantly awakening to new wonder and to praise uh, for the goodness of God. For the grateful person knows that God is good, not by hearsay, but by experience. And that is what makes all the difference in the world. And not just all the difference in the world, but all the difference in here and here. Craig Barnes, who's the president of Princeton Seminary, said it a little more, more concisely. Gratitude is our ability to see the grace of God morning by morning, no matter what else greets us in the course of the day. Gratitude is about awareness of our surroundings, awareness of our lives, awareness of how things are operating in the world about the small things that go unnoticed or overlooked in one's life. And second, gratitude recognizes that God works also through hardship in a person's life. Paul wrote to the the Thessalonians, give thanks in all circumstances. Not in just the ones that we would naturally give thanks for, but in all circumstances. Paul wrote to the Romans, That God is in the business of bringing good out of bad. God is in the business of bringing good out of bad. And so we can give thanks to God in all circumstances. C.S. Lewis wrote, We ought to give thanks for all fortune. If it is good, because it is good. If it is bad, because it works in us. Patience, humility, contempt of this world, and hope for our eternal country. 
Some of you uh, remember, know, or are uh, familiar with a woman named Johnny Erickson Tata. When she was young, when she was a teenager, she dove into a lake. Uh, She hit the bottom with her head. Don't dive into shallow water. Became a quadriplegic from that point on through the rest of her life and still today. Lives and has lived all of her adult life in a wheelchair. She wrote, When I was on my feet, big, boisterous pleasures provided only fleeting satisfaction, but in a wheelchair... Satisfaction settles in as I sit under an oak tree on a windy day and delight in the rustle of the leaves or sit by a fire and enjoy the soothing strains of a symphony. These smaller, less noisy pleasures are rich because unlike the fun on my feet, these things yield patience, endurance, and a spirit of gratitude, all of which fits me or prepares me further for eternity." It is this yieldedness that gains you the most here on earth, she wrote. Very interesting perspective. Just as our muscles grow stronger when they face resistance, so also our character and our faith can grow stronger when they face such situations, such circumstances. Be thankful in all circumstances. And gratitude often in this indirect way also brings peace or contentment. Paul wrote to the Philippians, do not be anxious about anything but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving. Present your request to God and the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. If we are grateful, as we are grateful, as we are trusting God, along with that comes the byproduct of of peace in and as we give thanks. Knowing that there is a God who does care, a God who is sovereign, a God who will provide, a God in whose arms we are safe and will be forever. And gratitude recognizes the presence and the role of other people in our lives. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote these words from prison where Paul also wrote a number of his letters. Listen to what he wrote. In normal life, we hardly realize how much more we receive than we give. In normal life, we hardly realize how much more we receive than we give. And life cannot be rich without such gratitude. It is easy to overestimate the importance of our own achievements compared with what we owe to the help of others. And maybe a person can realize this more quickly in prison. But what an important reflection for all of us to have in daily life. Who would we be without the people around us who have blessed us, given to us, provided for us, saved us, helped us in innumerable ways from our childhood until today? And gratitude humbles a person. The scriptures say, what do I have that I did not receive? Gratitude puts a person into right relationship with God, which is what humility is. Understanding that everything I have has been a gift, has been given to me. I may think I've achieved, obtained, worked, strained, earned, but in the end and in degrees, everything is a gift. 
And so that ought to humble us, which has the benefit of putting us in right relationship with God, not like this, but like this, at the feet of the one who gives everything. And gratitude brings glory and honor to God. First question in the, one of the uh, oldest but best known uh, creeds, catechisms, confessions in the Presbyterian Church and in the Reformed tradition comes out of the 1600s, the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And the first question, because it's the most important, is what is the chief end of man? What is our primary purpose? Why do we exist? What's it all about? What is the chief end of man? And the answer that catechism gives is the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, to bring glory to God and to find joy in that. And when we express gratitude, a byproduct of that is bringing glory to God, pointing to the one who gives us everything that we have. And then gratitude propels us to generosity. As Cindy said, it's almost like a circle. God comes to us in grace. We only know God in and through and because of his grace. He comes to us in that way. And then when we experience that grace what naturally happens in us when we apprehend it, when we embrace it, is gratitude. And that gratitude, when true and authentic and sincere and in our hearts, realizes that the best way to express that gratitude is through generosity and through giving that grace out to becoming agents and ambassadors of that grace. And so the circle is complete. Gratitude propels us to generosity. And so more than being about good manners, though it is that too. Gratitude is about the transformation of every person and particularly those who are in Christ. These things are God's intention and his will, his vision, his plan for you. Whether you take that job, whether you get married to that person, whether you have kids, whether you make that gift, whether you do this or do that or move to this place or take that job. This is God's will, God's intention for us in Christ Jesus. Gratitude is not something for a season. Gratitude is not just for November. Gratitude is not about a holiday on the fourth Thursday of November. Gratitude is that to which we are called all of the time and in every way through every step and season of life. Henry Nouwen wrote of gratitude these words. He said, gratitude isn't something that happens accidentally, but rather gratitude as a discipline involves a conscious choice. And this is where it gets really important for me. Gratitude as a dis discipline involves a conscious choice. I can choose to be grateful even when my emotions and feelings are still steeped in hurt and resentment. It is amazing how many occasions present themselves in which I can choose gratitude instead of a complaint. I can choose to be grateful when I am criticized, even when my heart still responds in bitterness. I can choose to speak about goodness and beauty, even when my inner eye still looks for someone to accuse or something to call ugly. Gratitude as a discipline involves a conscious choice. And as I read that this week, I thought about how many times this week I can choose anger or criticism or complaint or ingratitude, or God has given me the power, the gift, the ability to choose instead gratitude. Uh, back in uh, about, well, 1997 to be exact, 
uh, I was single and had all kinds of time on my hands. And so at the beginning of the year, I thought I'm going to just do something different for a different practice. And so the first morning, uh, I uh, kneeled down and prayed and just said, I'm going to pray through the old Acts model of prayer, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. So the first day was adoration and just praise God there for a while. First, first, with no, it was January 1st, didn't have to be anywhere. Second day was about confession. I went on for hours and hours and hours. There was so much to confess. It was horrible. The third day was Thanksgiving, and I found myself for 90 minutes on my knees. And even then could have gone on and on and on, kind of going, thank you, God, for this. Thank you, God, for that. Thank you, God, for this person. Thank you, God, for that person. There is a way in which gratitude is a discipline and needs to be a conscious choice that God in his grace empowers us to make. We say that we seek first his kingdom. How are we doing that? A guy named Tom Schmitz tells this story, his own story. He writes, the state-run convalescent home is not a pleasant place. It is a large it is large, understaffed, and overfilled with senile and helpless and lonely people who are waiting to die. On the brightest of days, it seems dark inside, and it smells of sickness and stale urine. I went there once or twice a week for four years in college, but I never wanted to go there, and I always left with a sense of relief, relief that I was gone. It's not the kind of place one gets used to. On this particular day, I was walking in a hallway that I had not yet visited before, looking in vain for a few who were alive enough to receive a flower and a few words of encouragement. This hallway seemed to contain some of the worst cases, strapped onto carts or into wheelchairs and looking completely helpless. As I neared the end of this hallway, I saw an old woman strapped in a wheelchair. Her face was an absolute horror. horror. The empty stare and white pupils of her eyes told me she was blind. The large hearing aid over one ear told me she was almost deaf. One side of her face was eaten by cancer. There was a discolored and running sore covering part of one cheek. And it had, been, and it had pushed her nose to one side, dropped one eye, and distorted her jaw so that she should have been, so that what should have been the corner of her mouth was the bottom of her mouth. As a consequence, she drooled constantly. I was told later that when new nurses arrived, the supervisor would send them to feed this woman, thinking that if they could stand this sight, they could stand anything in the building. I also learned that this woman was 89 years old and that she had been here bedridden, blind, nearly deaf, and alone for 25 years. This was Mabel. I don't know why I spoke to her. She looked less likely to respond than most of the people I was, that uh, I saw in the hallway that day. But I put a flower in her hand and said, here's a flower for you. Happy Mother's Day. She held the flower up to her face and tried to smell it, and then she spoke. And much to my surprise, her words, although somewhat garbled because of her deformity, were obviously produced from a clear mind. She said, thank you. It's lovely. But can I give it to someone else? I can't see it. You know I'm blind. I said, of course, and I pushed her in her chair down the hallway to a place where I thought I could give, find some other patients who were more alert. I found one. I stopped the chair. Mabel held out the flower and said, here, this is from Jesus. Jesus. 
that was when it began to dawn on me that this was not an ordinary human being. Later, I wheeled her back to her room and learned more about her story. She'd grown up on a small farm that she managed with only her mother until her mother died. Then she ran the farm alone until 1950 when her blindness and sickness sent her to the convalescent hospital. For 25 years, she got weaker and sicker with constant headaches, backaches, stomach aches, and then the cancer came too. Her three humates were all human vegetables who screamed occasionally but never talked. They often soiled their bedclothes, and, be, and because the hospital was understaffed, especially on Sundays when I usually visited, the stench was often overpowering. Mabel and I became friends over the next few weeks, and I went to see her once or twice a week for the next three years. Her first words to me were usually an offer of hard candy from a tissue box near her bed. Some days I would read to her from the Bible, and often when I would pause, she would continue reciting the passage from memory, word for word. On other days, I would take a book of hymns and sing with her, and she would know all the words of the old songs. For Mabel, these were not merely exercises in memory. She would often stop mid-hymn and make a brief comment about lyrics she considered particularly relevant to her own situation. I never heard her speak of loneliness or pain except in the stress she placed on certain lines and certain hymns. It was not many weeks before I turned from a sense that I was being helpful to a sense of wonder. And I would go to her with a pen and paper to write down the things that she would say. During one hectic week of final exams, I was frustrated because my mind seemed to be pulled in ten directions at once with all the things that I had to think about. The question occurred to me, what does Mabel have to think about? Hour after hour, day after day, week after week, not even able to know if it's day or night. So I went to her and asked, Mabel, what do you think about when you lie here? And she said, I think about my Jesus. I sat there and thought for a moment about the difficulty for me about thinking about Jesus for even five minutes, and I asked, what do you think about Jesus? And she replied slowly, slowly and deliberately as I wrote. I think about how good he's been to me. He's been awfully good to me in my life, you know. I'm one of those kind who's mostly satisfied. Lots of folks wouldn't care much for what I think. Lots of folks would think I'm kind of old-fashioned, but I don't care. I'd rather have Jesus. He's all the world to me. And then Mabel began to sing an old hymn, Jesus is all the world to me, my life, my joy, my all. He is my strength from day to day. Without him, I would fall. When I am sad, to him I go. No other one can cheer me so. When I am sad, he makes me glad. He's my friend. What do you think about Jesus? I think about how good he's been to me. What is God's will for me? What does God want me to do? Who does God want me to be? The more important question may be not what is God calling me to do or who is God calling me to marry or where is God calling me to live and what is God's will for me, but who is God calling me to become? And maybe God is calling us to become a little bit more like Mabel. Let's pray. You've been really good to us, God.
to all of us in different ways. We may not remember that. We may not focus on that. We may not acknowledge that. That may not be at the forefront of our minds when we're hard at work or when we're dissatisfied or when we're wanting something. But you have been really, really, really good to us. In creation, in Christ, in his cross, in the community that we enjoy, in the abundance of blessings that you have poured out to us, not because we're good, but because you're good. We honor you and we praise you. We want our lives to reflect your grace and to be testaments of your glory. Have your way in us, wherever we are, whatever we're doing, whoever we're with. Make us, cause us to become more and more like your Son, our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen.